I'm Alex Green, and this is Stereo Embers, the podcast. Check this out. Music of the Black Watch and that band's brain trust, John Andrew Frederick, is my guest today on the program. But before we get to my chat with John, let me tell you a little bit about the Black Watch. If Virginia Woolf was right when she said that obscurity wraps itself around us like mist, then the career of the Black Watch is shrouded in the most frustrating of fogs. Let me explain. Since 1987, Santa Barbara's The Black Watch have been releasing one of the most criminally overlooked discographies in all of music. As literate as the Verlaines, as poppy as the Chills, and as charming as the Jazz Butcher, The Black Watch's relatively secret status has, over the years, prompted outlets like USA Today to declare they should have become a household name a long time ago. While Trouser Press wrote, It's astonishing the band's following is the size of a kitchen sponge. So there's that. The Black Watch are great, and everybody knows it. That is, everybody who knows who they are knows it. Now, I'll let Mr. Frederick tell you what it's like being at the helm of a band that's been on the precipice of widespread appeal for the better part of three decades. But I can probably sum it up in Costello-like terms. I used to be disgusted, now I try to be amused. Like Marky Smith, who was the steady captain through all the permutations of the crew of the fall, John Andrew Frederick has remained the one constant member of the Black Watch. Frederick, who has been the principal singer-songwriter of the band's extensive discography of almost 25 albums and EPs, is the kind of guy who doesn't stand still. A professor of literature... He's also the author of several books, including the fabulous semi-autobiographical novel The King of Good Intentions, as well as The Knucklehead Chronicles and a book on the movies of Wes Anderson. And based on their extensive discography, it probably comes as no surprise to learn that John Andrew Frederick is always keeping time with the Black Watch. And if you were listening closely, yes, I did just go there. The ever-prolific Frederick has already followed up 2017's The Gospel According to John album with The Paper Boats EP. Stirring, moving, and filled with rousing pop thrills, The Paper Boats EP is yet another winning entry 
into an already glowing oeuvre. Oh, and guess what? There will be a new Black Watch album sometime later this year, and Frederick has just put the finishing touches on a new novel. I told you, the guy doesn't sit still. Now, I was really excited to talk to John because I've listened to the Black Watch for about 15 years. And they're one of those bands I just didn't know that much about. I was familiar with their discography. I knew John a bit, uh, but I didn't really know what made the Black Watch tick. So I was looking forward to having a chat about the band and about John's approach to music. And it was an amazing conversation. But even cooler is that I found out we have a lot in common. We're both Californians. Our dads both worked for defense. We're both tennis players, and we're both professors. Oh, and we're both looking to restart our modeling careers. Turns out we both miss the runways of Milan. (laughs) Once you walk down those things, you can never really walk back. Okay, here's my conversation with John Andrew Frederick of the Black Watch. One hell of a nice guy, one hell of a great band, one hell of a great chat. Enjoy it right here on Stereo Embers, the podcast. I've been friends with Catfish for the longest time as somebody who, you know, uh, I could lay at his feet the, the responsibility for him inspiring me to throw away my life and start a band just all those years ago. <laughs> but, um, so I've gone to, gone to play in Northampton and hang out with Pat and stay at his house a number of times. And it's kind of astonishing what, the, you know, he, he always pegs it as, a, or builds it as a, the biggest town in England. It's a, it's, it's, it has a very town-like feel. But everybody really does know everyone there. It's a, it's a huge, huge town. They don't, they don't like to call it a city. Northampton town and everyone does know everyone and there's just they, they don't have the same sort of territorial attitude about musicians that Americans seem to in the sense of you know this this is my bass player and my drummer and that everybody plays in every, on everybody else's records and they need somebody they all help out so it's much they're, they're communists musical communist in that fashion. I got into you guys about maybe 15 years ago or more when oh, no. when Pat had name-checked you and I was like, well, anything, yeah. you know, that that's the seal of approval. That was my entry point into you. Um, but I'm oh, wow. curious, like, what yeah. was what was your entry point into Pat? How did you guys become friends? Oh, gosh. Um, he he'd made, the, the, there was a uh, guy named Ian O'Higgins who produced Flowering, our first, uh, after we signed to Dr. Dream. Um, the first, that was made, the second album, Flowering, that, um, we, the, we were introduced by my good friend Liz Garrow, who's booked and worked at Restless Records, um, that she said, oh, you know, my, uh, good friend Ian O'Higgins is here, and I'd noticed because I'm a, you know, a liner notes dork, pouring over those all the time. You know, a number of producers have said, you're way more into producers than I am as a producer. Um, you know, I've noticed that Ian O'Higgins had done the engineering on Fishco Tech, which is a record that I just, you know, played to death. Oh, yeah. And so I thought, gosh, you know, um, if we could have the same engineer, and he turned out he'd done the House of Love's Christine, and bands in their 
callow early stages always think if we can just get you know the equivalent of Nigel Godrich will be amazing. <laughs> so, <laughs> we thought you know if we can get a Higgins, maybe we'll make a record as good as Fish Attack somehow with our own stamp on it. And you know then when the JBC came over, um, you know of course Ian would be hanging with them and he would introduce us as this band that he was producing, and then Jana, the violinist in the band at the time, she ended up play, playing on some of Pat's live stuff, and then we opened for them in the Roxy, and then he covered the song Terrific, and then, you know, he had me come over there and play a bunch of acoustic shows, we did a bunch of acoustic shows together, and then on this latest record, um, uh, ladies and gentlemen, the, the gentle folk, Good people. I can't remember what it's called. The one with the diving suit on the cover. Their comeback record. Oh, the uh, the last of the gentlemen adventurers. Yes, last of the gentlemen adventurers. It turns out that Pat's got a song that just um, so so very just you know nicks um, my biggest song, the biggest hit we ever had. Terrific. So he's paid me back in kind for all the times that I've taken ideas from his, <laughs> his stuff too there's a there's, there's a song on that record where i could just call call him up and hum it to him and hum one of our songs and um i could i could rattle him just a little bit in a playful way so yeah i don't know i mean it's just you get you get in so inspired one gets so inspired by some so many people that you know, it's just it's it's very exciting still to find to find things that just go make you go. Gosh, I really want to go write something too, not necessarily you know to parrot it or even to parody it or whatever. But somebody who just goes and the same thing goes for writing too. You read a wonderful passage of prose or really good music criticism as well to have you just go, gosh, you know, the way this person put words together makes me want to go rush off and, you know, get my get out my old my my notebook and take things down. Take dictation from myself. Yeah, and people I I remember when I was sixteen, seventeen, eighteen, that would happen to me ten times a day. Um and, and now, you know, now that I'm hundred and twelve um, yeah. <laughs> it, but, but, you know, it does, it does still happen though. Like, and, and I love that it yeah. still happens, but not as often. Well, Alex, the day that it doesn't is the time to just, I just, I'm, I'm putting stuff out to proverbial pasture or something, you know, as long as, as long as there are, you know, people, people to stimulate and motivate and inspire, then, you know, then super and that's, that's good. But yes, I think it, I think that's, that stands to reason that that, that would attenuate after time, right? That you know, when you were when we were young and, and so gung ho, I don't know. We still we, we seem the black box seems to keep on being gung ho somehow. I don't know what's in the water here in Los Angeles, but <laughs> <laughs> are you uh, John? Are you originally from California? Uh, yeah, I was born in Richmond, Virginia, and then my parent, my, my dad worked in, in defense, and then he got a job, um, I'm in California, so I grew up in Santa Barbara, um, which was a really, really idyllic place to grow up. But yeah, I was born in the, um, in the north-south in Richmond, 
It's funny because my my dad worked in defense too, uh, and I was raised here in San Francisco. But I had this kind of, and maybe you had it too. I had this sort of romantic idea of all those British bands like the Jazz Butcher. You know, when I was when I was a teenager, I just had this romantic idea of everyone there being friends and everyone and this kind of mysterious. Uh, um, kind of idyllic life over there, but probably because it was so different from what I was experiencing as a as a kid in the Bay Area. Well, I mean, I think that's that along the lines of that um, that finds a parallel for me and the way in which we can um, um, be chagrined for the kids of today who, not, because of the internet and because you, you know, ostensibly you can find out almost anything you want about just about anybody. That that. That mystery, that element of um, of the unknown, you know, you think if you would have got, you know, you got a, a record that was came out um, that was, uh, you know, Envelope 23 for 4AD, you know, put out a record by the Cocteau Twins that you just didn't know anything other than just this gorgeous image on the cover. So right. I think I think there's something greatly lost in all of our collective in our collective imagination. In the sense that you could, you know, some of the latest band that comes out, and I can't drop any names because I, it's hard for me to follow new music these days in the way that I did before. You know, you you're you're doing with stereo embers. It seems you guys are doing great at keeping your finger on the pulse, as it were. But yeah, I think it's I think there's something really lost in in the sense of your imaginative. You know, participation. I didn't know what the Beatles and the Stones, you know, because I'm of a different generation to you. Um, I imagine because if you're 123, I'm, I'm, I'm more than that. <laughs> <laughs> Just slightly more. But that, the, the times for me as a, as a, as a kid, you know, with my hand locked behind my head or having friends come over or when it was a rainy day in elementary school, you know, that we, we wouldn't go out, out to, to recess, but Stay in, and the teacher would let us play records, and we'd put on the Beatles and the Stones, or the Beach Boys, or the Kinks, and then you know you just didn't even you got your information from Teen Beat magazine or Sixteen or whatever, which was just rubbishy gossip. But that was all you had. You held on to every precious little bit of information about about these people who were making these songs that just moved you to jump up and down. When you're writing a Black Watch song, what helps you? What's one of the main factors that helps you decide what goes in and what doesn't go in to a song? By having the most eminent, you know, taste and being, being, being a man of, of taste and distinction and having read a lot of poetry. I don't know. It's somewhat instinctual, I'd say. And you're, you're sort of touching upon a realm of the unconscious, too, that, you know, it's kind of the ineffable, inexplicable how do we know these things? I mean, maybe it's in some ways from just having your taste cultivated over time. And then sometimes, you know, gosh, reserving the right to, to go over, to exceed that. I don't know. I don't know what keeps me from going. I mean, you could ask somebody else and they could go, oh, gosh, this is so, this is so syrupy. This is so gobbledygook. This is so just, you know, um, mimicking John Lennon's Across the Universe, which where he would have said that was, you know, just a bunch of poetic gobbledygook or whatever. But that's got its place, too, sometimes for for you to just have to have the sound of words. Um, 
more than more than conveying meaning because it's always I don't know that's the thing that's always rankled a little bit with political bands for me who's just kind of sloganeering. I mean, what kind of ideology can you espouse in the course of a five to six minute, you know, or three minute pop song? You know, I mean, God bless the Clash or or whoever, you know, but at the same time, how how deep can can you go in a way? So I don't know. I guess it's I guess it's in part um, some kind of um, maybe some sort of monitoring, self-monitoring. You're a good listener. You can just, yeah, um, stop me in any of these times. That's what I'm saying. <laughs> you do let these people go on. Please stop me if you've heard this one before or again. I'm just, I'm, I'm reeling a bit and thinking like, you, you've been, you've known about the band for 15 years. Gosh, I've, I, I hadn't heard about that. Alex, that's nice to hear that all this time. I don't know. People have a tendency sometimes to keep their their um, their ad, maybe admiration or you know enjoyment of what the Black Watch does, a kind of a secret, and that really upsets me. <laughs> when I hear that. You know, I've had people come up to me at gigs and gone, you know, secretly I've been into you guys for a long time. Like, why is it a secret? What's the matter with you? Are we that? I know we're not cool, but are we that uncool? Come on. I know, like, there's so much press on you guys that is, they're the most obscure band you'll love to keep a secret. Yeah. And it's like, why? Yes. Bless your thoughts for saying, for bringing that up for the four millionth time. Yeah. I don't know. I just, I was just, it's so funny because thinking about talking to you today, I was, I was thinking, gosh, I'm, I'm going to have to have a, a, a snappy, quippy clip for, or like, I know he's going to bring up the fact that we've been touted as the secret, you know, undiscovered national treasure or whatever <laughs> so long now that it's a running joke. So. <laughs> well, I just want to know if, like if you... Asking the Beatles when the bubble's going to burst. Not that I'm <laughs> saying that we're great or bigger than the Beatles or I want to know if you're sick of that, if you're sick of people saying that to you, because it's sort of like, I mean, in in some ways, it's always nice to know that you're sort of like a beloved secret treasure. But I, I think what people are really saying is like, why don't more people know about this band? And I guess I would ask you that question, like, why don't they? We don't know, Alex. We just don't know. It's one of the mysteries, like the Bermuda Triangle, or, you know, or... Or, or why certain people, I don't know, get get two units or ten pages away from finishing their PhD and just don't do it. No one, no one knows why that's the case. But it's very nice to hear once again that we perhaps haven't gotten as much credit as or recognition as we deserve. But I don't know. Gosh, do you think about it? Historically, there's millions of artists. You know, uh, the painter called William Eddy, who's a uh, contemporary of the pre-Raphaelites whose, whose paintings are utterly beautiful and nobody knew him in his time. It's a matter of publicity and I think, I don't know, some magical element that comes together and, I don't know, whenever somebody gets overhyped, I always just think, you know, you know gosh, you know, come back to us in five years. Where, where will you be, you know? Um, Will you have made some more records? Will you have just made the same thing over and over? No, I think it's it's just a mystery. I got a really nice note from a girl in Japan who had read my book, Emergency Anthems, and she said, oh, your book meant so much to me. And it was a really beautiful 
note. And then she said, it, it helped me out through such a tough time. I wish there was something I could do for you. And I wanted to write back to her and say, there is. Tell all your friends. <laughs> Tell yeah, your friends. Yeah, that's a great, that's a great, um, that's a great sort of thing to note. And it's a great thing for people to, um, to be, people to be reminded of that many of us have labored, you know, with, with day jobs. And mind you, I'm not, you know, um, uh, you know, um, bitching about that. I think it's a good idea for an artist to have a job for at least a few hours a day, have somewhere to go. But it's just that is that is the best thing that people can do is just blab, blab about it. You know. So and now that I know about that, I'll go and read your book too. So, uh, <laughs> well, one of the things that I used to love about Letterman back in the '80s is I would turn on the TV and I would feel. John, like I was in a world. I was, I felt like I was in the subterranean night world where cool shit happened. And right. when I listen to the Black Watch, I feel that way too. There's a universe that you have concocted where I feel I'm in a place. And that's not really a question. It's more of just a comment. That That's one of the things I love so much about your band. Well, thank you very much. That's great. Great to say. <clears throat> I mean, it's, uh, I think it's so much... That's a much more valuable compliment, and I do take it as such, than someone, the way in which people approach you sometimes, whether they're critics or just punters at the gig, will go, they want to tell you some, in some ways what they're listening to, so they'll tell you that you sound like someone. Right. You know, instead of saying that this is sui generis, this is of its own thing, it's a very u- unique, you know, well, only to a, to itself kind of, sort of world and you know how can you not think of the brian wilson line here's me geeking totally going you know there's a world where i belong that you know that i can go in my room from that song in my room i just right. butchered the quotation <laughs> <laughs> yeah i mean you know, that, that squares with my notion that records are really made for for us so for one one person you know you the listener with headphones you know, as you dream away, dream away or rock away with us. So thank you for saying that. That's a nice thing to note. Oh yeah, and and I was thinking, you know, when I when I'm writing, it's like I'm working on the sequel right now to the last book. There are I definitely realize that I officiate that universe. There's imagery that I won't allow in, and there's other stuff that I that I invite in constantly. I probably do it too much. Um, so when, when you're concocting or when you're occupying the, the Black Watch universe, are you aware of that? Do you filter like, oh, that doesn't feel Black Watchy or that, that clearly does? How do you manage that? I like your verb, officiate, you know, turning oneself into a referee of one's own unconscious. Right. I don't, I don't think I'm that, I don't think I'm that, I, I know I want, I know I want guitars to, to ring and fuzz. And I know I want two of them because I don't, I believe, I believe in the four person, two guitars, bass and drums paradigm or, you know, guitar and synthesizer, if it's New Order, one of my very favorite bands of all time. And um, I just, I don't know necessarily that it's that contrived that some, that I would ever go, oh, that doesn't sound, you know, like it's, like it's us. I think it's just whatever, whatever the song dictates the ways in which the ways in which sometimes, you know, in a trippy fashion, it sounds very touchy-feely. 
but you know that's the that's the mystic part of me and anybody who writes, um, no matter what they write, whether it's songs or books about records or whatever. Um, that I think the song kind of just tells you what it wants to be, and some of them come out, you know, great. Others come out how they come out, and you know, it's just I think it's it's more of a process of us going. We will grow up in public. We will not make demos. We'll, if we're going to go spend whatever little, you know, pittance of money we've got and beg favors from producers and engineers, we'll go in and do the song, you know, as it was written or expanded, but not do a sketch of it. Just go in, go and go for it. And so there's a, you know, there's a hazard to that because sometimes you could go, gosh, it doesn't, we didn't really, we didn't really capture it or, afterwards but i don't know if the excitement's there i think that's the that, that's the thing that officiates the excitement and the you know desire to make the thing the best that you can possibly do every every work of art to failure i believe so i just keep on trying to fail beautifully and live to fail another day <laughs> <laughs> is it is it a failure because it's so hard to apprehend the exact thing you want to do Mm, no, because it's a, it's a failure in part that 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 could be said, but it's also a failure in the sense that um, you didn't know exactly what you wanted to do. I think I think in the, the ways in which I don't know who is it. I keep on dropping names here, but my I'm sitting in my kitchen, which is filled with books and records. You know, uh, it's just I think uh, whoever said it was as soon as a thought is uttered, it's kind of more of an and whether uh, Oscar Wilde said that or Wittgenstein would say the same thing about how, gosh, you know, as soon as, as soon as something's committed to, even articulated in our speech, you know, the, the emotion or feeling behind it is, is gone. So that's, that's how it's a, that's how it's sort of a, a failure in the sense that it just, I don't know. I mean, I, I hate to keep on referencing. You know, the Beatles, that Lennon said that he would have recorded every single thing that, you know, that they did over again. And you go, oh, my God, this, I wouldn't record any of it over again. They're amazing. So, yeah, I I answered your question. no, you did. I wonder. I also wonder if like I know it's funny. I've never heard an artist of any kind say I did exactly what I wanted to do. And it's and I'm totally satisfied with it. <laughs> Um, but I wonder, yeah. you know, but I wonder if we get to that point where if ever you do hit it, where you, you, you actualize what you want to do in such a perfect way, you might go, well, I guess I'm done. Yeah, that's possible. That's possible that you do, that you, you don't, you don't reach completion or perfection in order to give it another go. You know, that's, or, or maybe to see if you can do it again. I mean, that's, that's. You, you saw that quite, that's just a question that's been around ever since criticism has existed. Ever since somebody, you know, made something, painted something on a wall, you know, cave, on a cave, on the wall of a cave, and someone came along and, you know, wrote down something on a slab about it, <laughs> that, you know, interpreting it, that, that would be the same, that would probably be the same question. Yeah, like art is an attempt at perfection and a verification that you can't have it. That's that. That sounds like a, that sounds like it could be a meme. Alex, go, <laughs> go for it. Put it on a put it on a biscuit. <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> are you um are do you consider yourself to be prolific? Oh, of course. That's that's what I've been called so many times, so I kinda have to. Yeah, I, I, I sort of but you know, if you compare what I've done in the course of since nineteen eighty eight with the first the first LP on vinyl, which no one will ever hear, which is that's good. Except for the still five hundred people who have that record or something or cassette. Um, you know, if you compare what, what we've done with what Robert Pollard's done or Robert Fripp or you know, Robert Smith or any Robert off the street <laughs> it's, you know, it's not it's 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 all it's all relative. I guess, I don't know, are you trying to ask me if I've put out too many records? No, I'm trying to ask why people yeah. are always so... I, I think it's so weird when people are surprised that someone is producing so much. It's sort of like, well, that's, you know, life is short. Well, I think the more we come into the public eye, the more with certain people who are, you know, essaying to release things. Um, and I meet so many people, whether they're fans of the band or whether they're just, you know, someone at the pub, um, who, who have desires and dreams to do. I know so many talented people who can't seem to produce their first book or can't seem to get it together to make a record. They write, they play beautifully. They just, nothing's ever good enough for them. And I think when they, they encounter a person like me who wakes up you know, and finds that, you know, he's got another record out willy-nilly or whatever. I don't, I don't know that they love hearing that. I'm not trying to suggest that it occasions a kind of a envy, but in a way, it's, it's sort of, I don't know, people sometimes look at the discography, as they tell me, and they go, they go to, you know, Amoeba Records, and they, they go to the B section, the used section a lot of the time. <laughs> <laughs> and go, my God, you guys have so many records. Where do I begin? And then they just kind of go, I just didn't buy anything because I didn't, I didn't want to get the wrong one. You know, or just, or when people say to me, sometimes they go, Oh, John, you know, I heard your record. Oh, really? Which one? There's 15 of them and a bunch of e EPs. And there isn't just your record or whatever. So, I mean, I, I, I'm certainly on the side of people, you know, trying to do things but you know my avuncular you know aside would be just gosh just forget about that uh, you know uber voice that judges and go go do it and see what happens to it once you put it out into the world and you know let and don't and then and don't stop i think that quest for per perfection kills off kills off careers uh, you know or potential too look at a guy like kevin shields takes 20 Two or seventeen years between Loveless and the the, the blue one that came out right. four years ago. Right, so. right. I mean, that's that's absolute that's madness. But it, you know, everybody has their own sort of madness anyway. So you know, that's if you if, if you that if that's that's for him him to have, and that's his own cross to bear. But you know. At least he superseded that whatever was keeping him from making another record and, and did it, which is great. Well, I just heard the new English Beat 
single yesterday, and they haven't put you know, they you know really, they, they yeah, re- they re- well, I mean, right. it's it's just it's just Dave Wakeling and some hired guns, but they're good guns, and I and I heard the first new song since 1982, and I thought, okay, so yeah. it's been like what 35, 36 years, and it's just the same thing, and I and I thought to myself, what took so long? Because it's not that different. I mean, it's great, but it's 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 kind of just building on what was already done. Um, it's not like breaking any new ground. It's, it's, I love it, but I always, I, I thought, well, why so long if it's just doing Does the it same thing? Like save it for later. It sounds like one a, greatest, one of the greatest songs ever written. Like can't get enough of that song. Oh my God. That song is amazing. It sounds yeah. like the band who did save it for later. Put it that way. Okay. Yeah. I mean, normally, normally I'm against people reforming. It just seems, you know, it seems so cynical now. And, um, but at the same time, I do understand the idea of, you know, my kid never, he grew up listening to Slow Dive and My Bloody Valentine and Sword Driver and never got to see them play. And now that they're out there, you know, trotting out their, their wares once again, you know, it's really good for kids who, who didn't get to see them at the Roxy in 1991 or two, you know, to get to see these bands. But gosh, 30 some odd years between, songs there today but he's been playing a lot I mean, every time you turn around the english beat are, are playing some some sawdust festival in in thousand oaks or something i don't know so maybe he's been just really busy um being a live musician
tell me about the latest uh, Black Watch. Tell me what, uh, just in terms like thematically, do you think there's there's new stuff you're exploring? Like, where does it fall in the sort of oeuvre of the band? Mm, I keep on trying to write fewer lyrics just because it's a struggle for me to sing sometimes because um, I don't have a super trained voice. I think I'm a vocalist and not a singer. If you, can know, if you can imagine, I'll just leave it to you to imagine the difference between those two things. You know, I'm more, I'm a vocalist, not a singer. And um, so I just keep on trying to write fewer lyrics and let the music stretch out and let the guitar interplay kind of hold sway. But on this one, I don't know. A whole bunch of a whole bunch of lyrics just came along in terms of telling something of a story. And because I'm not really working on a novel right now, I think sometimes the songs turn into mini novels. So the title track, the eponymous track, the paper boats, kind of just came from me um, imagining a young girl with her uncle going down to the serpentine or the round pond and putting a paper boat in there and. <clears throat> making type paper butts and then as a as a grown up girl trying to recapture that with her boyfriend and then realizing as the boat sank in the in the pool in the valley here in Los Angeles that it, the past is impossible to recapture. So I think that that theme, you know, which is the same theme that, you know, your Keats and your Shelley, the two of my favorite poets, you know, that, that they they traffic in all the time, that that's, that's just a recurring thing of, you know, all of our attempts to just capture something that's un, that you can't ever get back. So that's the run, that's a running theme, theme through all the lyrics, but I think it's just more um, prominent maybe in this, 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 this collection of new, new four songs. Yeah, because it feels very thematically, there's a uniformity to it. In, in the way I hear it. That's possible. When you got to think about, I mean, if you know that the term, the intentional fallacy, it comes from new criticism where the, the idea that somebody like, um, uh, Northrop Fry, great, um, Canadian critic from the sixties and seventies would say, you know, and T.S. Eliot would say the same thing. As, like the artist is just another interpreter of his, of his work. He's not an authority on it just because he wrote it. And I, I really like that idea of, um, of just being in another opinion, whatever. And, uh, how, how often, so often, you know, I'm sure you know this from doing scads of interviews and reading scads of interviews with people that an artist isn't someone to trust necessarily about his work, especially in terms of assessing it. Every band comes along and goes, Oh my God, our new record is our best. No, it's not. A lot of the time, you know, say, just that artist, you know, it's just, it's just the one that you've, one that you've just finished and the one that you're most, um, chuffed, you know, about. So, um, I don't think I, I shouldn't really trust me. Any of the statements that I make is just another interpretation of. So I wonder if we all, we probably sometimes don't even know what we're doing, even though we're doing it. Sure. Of course. Uh, okay. That was easy. <laughs> questions on the parts of people who care greatly about art of 
asking, perpetually asking the artist, you know, where did you get this? Where does this come from? Because no one ever can really explain where, from whence it's come. You know? I mean, there's a song on the last LP, The Gospel, according to John, called Whence, the title, the, the first, the first track that's really all about that, you know, where, where we say, you know, I don't know from whence it comes. You know, but but to question it's to you know to 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 almost wish it gone. It's almost one of those things where you don't don't touch it, or you'll spoil it. In the same way, to anybody who paints who knows that there's a point where, oh my God, resist the temptation to um to to daub anything more on that canvas, or you'll mess it up. I mean, any, anyone I don't know if you paint at all or draw. But that's so the case too that you could, there's a point where you can just really ruin something. And I think that a lot of times you do spoil stuff by by, by attempting to you know touch its essence or marrow or what have you. Now, like you, I'm a professor, and a few years ago I was conducting some of the interviews for the MFA writing program. When an author would come, I would do the live interview, like you and I are doing now, but in front of an audience and. It's interesting because I would – so an author would come and I would interview them after their reading and then I'd look out at the crowd and people – like it's a little creepy the way some people look at artists in the sense that I think they want to know – there's two different camps. One side wants to know how this person was able to find the keys to turn the locks that made these people feel so much, right? And so they look at them the way you might look at a magician, there's a kind of like peculiar reverence. It's really interesting. And then the other half of the audience wants to know the secret. You know, like, what's your process? How'd you get an agent? What do I need to do to be you? It's it's one or the other. <laughs> and it's, it's so weird to see that in person because that it clearly is always divided into two camps. And I, I, I can't, I don't have anything to add to that because it's, I mean, that seems that, that, very precise, but anytime I've gone to do readings of my books, I've encountered the same thing. I'm just, I mean, it's it's really odd when it's the first question of somebody raising his or her hand goes, "How'd you how'd you get published?" You know, I have to laugh at, at that. Um, you know, I, I like there's a there's a certain obviously a little a little bit sadistic element in me when I encounter a question like that. I I go, I suffered for fifty years <laughs> and three publishers who accepted my first novel and then balked for 15 years. Are you happy now? You know, I suffered and suffered and revised and revised for the longest time. You know, that's how I got published. You know, so yeah, but I mean, both of those could be, both of those could be kind of construed in other words, you know, tell me, your, you know, give me this Give me this intricate, integral part of you that's that's the essence of you if you really mean it. If you're not just a dilettante, you know, to say, you know, how how do I how do I do that? I mean, that's one of the reasons why Los Angeles is something of a you know pernicious kind of atmosphere because I can't tell you how many times. I mean, I'm sure I'm coming off as you know so self-righteous and megalomaniacal here, but oh well. (laughs) (laughs) It's Friday. People have gone, gone, you know, oh, I saw you're not a feature in the big takeover or a magnet. How'd you get back? 
you know, where I've had that from a number of musicians in, in LA and you kind of just go, how do, how do I even respond? How do I even respond to that? You know? Well, because the real question they're asking is, how do I get that? Yeah, right. And people can't be blamed for, for wanting recognition for what they, for what they do. I mean, it's really sometimes almost charming, Alex, the way that, I don't know, I was in San, I went back home to Santa Barbara, uh, a few weeks ago to, to start writing another, another record and putting down some guitars at a studio there. And there was a, a guy who was a friend of the engineer who's got a band that nobody knows. It's made a few records and put them out to no acclaim in Santa Barbara. And he saw some article we had and he, I mean, just unabashedly said, why aren't I in Magnet? <laughs> um, I'm standing right here. I don't know why I'm not the editor of the paper, so or the, the journal. So I don't know. Yeah, I guess that's it. I always wonder sometimes about meeting, you know, when a fan meets an artist, I always wonder, is that even a useful occasion or conversation? Because it's kind of like if you meet the builder of a house, you can't say to them, how did you build that? It's like it's not it's not just you know an answer you can you can give, and I always look at those readings and I always I always wonder is this easy, even a useful moment um, because I I always I'm not sure what the person who likes the artist is going to get out of that experience other than the fact yeah. that you know what I mean yeah, sure yeah you've nailed it yeah I mean but I think it's I think it's one of those things where one where sometimes people can't help but probe. I mean, being aware of that, I've never asked. I've never asked any of my friends who write to bring it full circle and come back to Pat and the Jazz Butcher. You know, when I first met him, he was you know an idol. I go, you're on Creation Records. You're you write unbelievably beautiful songs. I I love your band so much. I'm you know I would never say how did you how did you do that at all because I mean, it seems like it would be an insult. And moreover, you know, I think I was self-aware enough to know, to know no no amount of insight even if it could be provided is going to make you you're your own thing you're not you're not you know like a band i don't know i'm just going to be harsh but a band like ringo death star right Who's right just attempting to just ape everything my bloody valentine ever did or that band the pains of being pure in heart that just infuriate me sometimes to hear people, you know, getting into or beach house, where I would always just kind of go. I mean, sorry, beach house, but you're you're a band for people who've never heard the cocktail twins, so piss off. You know, or whatever. <laughs> <laughs> I'm never, don't get me started on bands, Alex Green. Please don't. <laughs> but there'll be no turning back. I mean, there'll be a lot of turning off of pissed off, turning off of the you know, So <laughs> stop me, please. Don't let me. So I'm looking at my foot now. There's already enough holes shot in it. But there is something kind of shameless. I mean, last night I was flipping the channels and, and Waterworld with Kevin Costner was on. And I was like, that is such a terrible cover version of The Road Warrior. Um, you know, it's just so poorly done. And I think of bands like Ringo Death Star or Beach House. And those are very obvious cover versions of entire bands. Uh, so I, I don't disagree with you at all. Well, they won't, if they're listening, they won't be too happy to hear that. Or, you know, maybe, I don't know, who knows what, what people, what people think. Maybe some, maybe some band that is just a, you know, uh, uh, a sort of uh, 
simulacrum of a of Robin Hitchcock out there would be like, heck yeah, we sound we we sound like that. Rob Rob Campanella who's produced the last few records with Scott Campbell, our usual producer. He's in the he's a keyboard player and sometime guitar player in the Brian Jonestown Massacre and has been for some time and Rob has a band, I don't know if you know his band that put out a couple of records and in the nineties they're um they're called what are they called? They sound so much like the birds. You would just say, you know, we sound really, really, really like the birds. Um, the quarter after. Oh yeah. Okay. Um, sure. He saw, uh, Rob's one of my closest friends, so he would kill me if I couldn't remember the name of his <laughs> Quarter after him and his brother Dong and um, two other guys. And remember when he gave me his first CD that came out on Parasol or whatever? He goes, we really like the birds. And I thought, gosh, that's really, you know, you're heading them off the path, as it were, and saying, you know, we're aware of the fact that we love, you know, three-part harmonies and um, mid-tempo tempos and 12-string Rickenbackers ringing, ringing out and singing about how the flowers are in bloom. Um, so don't, you know, hold it against us. We know we sound like the birds. And um, I think, yeah, there, 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 must be, there must be some bands like that that just... Don't they don't they're not offended or they don't care if you if if, if someone were to point out they they might even take it as a um you know as a as a compliment or you know a minor kudo to just go yeah we do sound like fill in the blank. Well, like those Jim Ruiz records in the '90s on Minty Fresh. I mean, those were those were done by a guy who clearly had copies of Bloody Nonsense that he'd worn out on cassette because um, they oh, were. Uh, they were so jazz butcher, but but I think it was forgivably reverent. Yeah, I think that. Excuse me. Um, yeah, that's kind of to be. That, that's sort of to be determined. Like, why is it? Why is it that a band like Yuck? I don't know where Yuck are in right now. I mean, so I guess I do. I'm revealing that I do know more about newish music than I pretend to. But um, <laughs> what, you know, a band like Yuck that uh, obviously came out and sounded very much like Dinosaur. Love child of dinosaur junior and MVB. Why do they not send me, you know, drive me up the wall in a way that, you know, another band might make me crazy for their lack of lack of self consciousness or or shameless aping somebody? I don't know. This is coming from somebody when we first started. You know, I remember there was a, a very early review of of St. Valentine or short stories, the, the, the two that just came out on vinyl very early where somebody said, oh, here's a record by the California Cure. And I said, cool, I've got to give it to you. That's pretty good. That's pretty good. Nice dig. Yeah. You know, <laughs> I've spent my entire career attempting to mask that influence as best I can, you know, in terms of anxiety and influence or whatever, but you you nailed it. <laughs> you know, boy, are we trying hard to not show we do want the cure. So, so that. Do you, um, well, yeah, I mean, like, it's, it's nice when that, that, that is a very catchy phrase, by the way, the California cure. Please don't repeat that, Alex Green. I won't. <laughs> That's yeah, I won't. If you say, 4, <laughs> do you tell your, uh, students, are they aware? Cause it's funny. I have referenced the podcast to my students, like by accident sometimes. Um, and also sometimes to see if any of them will pull the thread and no one ever does. Um, but yeah. do you do you reference your band? Do they know about the Black Watch? Sometimes I think I kind of make a 
you know, I, I have a little conference, you know, professor, professor conference with myself every semester and kind of go, don't bring up the band or your books. But it's so, I'm such a, I'm such a, you know, open book um, as, a, uh, as a prof in the sense of my, my theory always is that the, the students need to really want to excel, not just for their sake, but for, for yours. And there's two ways to motivate them. One is to really get them angry at you as you hand back a paper that you've given them, you know, 68 or, or 72 to a proud student and get them pissed off and go, you know, yeah, okay, let's be motivated. Anger is an energy and show me what you can do or endear yourself to them and go, gosh, you know, John's such a great guy. I'm, I'm sure students love you, you know, um, and go, you know, gosh, I really want to do this, do this for him too, to show, you know, God, he's up there doing the song and dance and temp- attempting to help us to learn to read literature better and to become better writers and, you know, like to think that they, that they might be inspired. So, you know, a lot of times it just, just comes out in the course of, in, in the course of the lecture or discussion that, yes, I have a band. Yes, I, I'm a, a novelist, that, that sort of thing. But they don't, they, they're hardly ever really impressed. You know, they, they might be going to start rapping. <laughs> which would never happen. So, yeah. But, I know. Uh, the rap star, then that was, that might be that might be the key. I mean, I don't know what your persona is in the class, but I'm I'm really at first very intimidating because I don't I try to weed out the students that won't aren't going to work, and then I you know let them know that I'm really underneath that you know uh, that facade that I'm really a softy and I'm rooting for them so much and I love them. I was telling them my most softy softness. I was telling my I got to teach with love. I love, I have to love you guys. You know, teaching is a form of, of love. I often talk to the students about how the two things that I love most playing tennis and playing guitar, I would, I would have to be so in love with someone to teach her to play tennis or play guitar. You know, I've never taught anybody to play guitar and I've never given anybody a tennis lesson. I've never loved anybody that much, but you know, I get paid to teach English lit, so there's that recompense. But I mean, I really do think that you have to just have a certain, just you know, affiliation or affinity. Let's put it this way, if you don't want to use the L word, have an affinity for people to want the most and best for them to draw out of them, like Plato said, or whatever. It sounds like a lecture every time I open. I'm not on the clock right now. It's summer break, so. No, listen, the girl, the girl that I'm seeing sometimes will be talking and she'll say to me, that's enough, professor. Yeah, well, good for her. Yeah. And I, I kind of veer into that sometimes and I don't even realize I'm doing it. Yeah, I think it's natural. We talk about this in class too, that how difficult it would be um, as, a, as a prof not to be or to be the kid of a of a professor, because you're used to, to telling people, don't do it over, or do it again, not good enough, or being the authority. I think we all have to very much watch it in our personal lives. You know, I think that her telling you that is a really good way to check you and to say, you know, look, you don't, you don't own the you don't own the floor, and you don't own the floor even when you're in your class too. And just and then we're circling back to the idea of the artist doesn't own the 
interpretation of his own works. And it all goes round and round. Tell me a bit about the new Black Watch EP and how it fits into the scheme of things. The EP is just a, a precursor to to a record that I I made this year and finally found a fund for a new label for um, in Adam Records and um, it's sort of like Sid Barrett. Uh, Sid Barrett had joined New Order. So those of you who want to dance while you're freaking out on acid and loving Sid, like we've made something for you. lovely guy, lovely chat. That is John Andrew Frederick from The Black Watch. And if you have a chance, here's what I would recommend that you do. Help The Black Watch not be a secret anymore. All you have to do is go to the band's Bandcamp page, theblackwatch.bandcamp.com, and check out the Paper Boat CP. And since you're there, forage your way through the band's back catalog. You will not be sorry. Uh, Also, Let's make uh, Stereo Embers not a secret. Go to iTunes and subscribe for free. Also, since you're there, I'm giving you a lot of tasks. I think you should also check out Bombshell Radio and subscribe to us as well. And if you're feeling generous, maybe uh, give a couple stars. Throw a couple stars our way. Bruce Lee style, with speed and purpose. We'd appreciate a rating from you. And if you feel so inclined, leave a comment or two, we read these things here at Bombshell Radio because, uh, let's face it, our fragile egos need to be fed. Uh, let's close the show off with a song from the Paper Boat CP. This is the title track as chosen by Mr. Frederick off the air. He uh, picked this song for us to close the show with. And so close the show with it, I shall. By the way, not an easy sentence to say. Uh, if you want to drop me a line, please do so, editor at StereoEmbersMagazine.com or on Twitter at EmbersEditor. Here is Paper Boats, and I will see you next week for another episode of Stereo Embers, the podcast.
Washington English wind. 